0: you. <laughs>
1: podcast, I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Hot Toddy. Good to be with you, friends. Please bear with us as we are going through some audio difficulties. You may have noticed that the last five to six to ten episodes may have sounded a little strange. Perhaps Toddy and Vinny sounded like they were in another room or down a hallway, Well, we found out that our sound equipment wasn't working properly, so now we just kind of figured that problem out, and we are working on uh, just one microphone right now. So bear with us till we get some new equipment, but we think at least the outcome will be consistent.
0: Four (laughs) boys, one mic.
1: (laughs) We are bringing you another true crime episode. All right, so this true crime episode... Is uh, about a would say a little known case, but then again, there is a film in the Criterion Collection about it, so it's not that it's a little known. It's just not as popular as some of the other ones, right? And so we are talking about the Starkweather killing spree or the Starkweather Fugate killing spree. Do you have a better name for it that it's commonly referred to?
2: Nah, I think it's usually just Starkweather. Okay,
1: <laughs> yeah. The names. Okay. We'll talk about Fugate's role in it, but it's uh, it's accompanied by a film, as I said, in the Criterion Collection, known as Badlands. So, uh, how many of you were familiar with this case to begin I was not familiar with this case. I'd probably heard about it
2: in passing, but it was not immediately on my radar. I've never heard of it. Uh, it's one I've always been familiar with. My mom will probably not appreciate me sharing this story, but when we visited um, Starkweather's headstone uh, she found a piece of dog shit and put it on his grave <laughs> So there, there, there you go for the opener I thought
3: you were going to say she took a picture of the wrong grave no,
2: that, no <laughs> like the Annie, Annie Bill House. Um, yeah that's, that's a true story she didn't announce it either but yeah. I was like what are you doing and she walked over and placed it on his stone man. she's like fucking piece
0: of shit yeah uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the name but not really the case and I think it's because of when the, the serial <clears throat> killer movies had a resurgence I think Starkweather was one that they were kind of reaching out for. too. I think there's a couple on him. It was a
2: much bigger deal across the country when it happened. Yeah, and slowly things just kept getting worse with these different true crime stories, and so over time it starts to weaken a little bit in terms of what, being at the forefront of what this people s- discuss.
0: Overlapped with um, the in the. In Cold Blood case? Yeah,
2: that's more in the same same realm. Middle America, 50s, uh, pre-serial killer culture. That really changed the narrative. Sure,
1: sure. You know, from these sleepy little towns that were used to leaving, their doors unlocked. You know, this is where all that starts to change. Well, yeah. then, and it just keeps rolling into the 70s and everything like that. But this is where Middle America, they're like, the cities have their problems, right? But not here. Yeah. And this is here. Uh... In the pop culture lexicon, should we just mention that before we get into the case itself? I mean, you don't know about the Starkweather case, but the Starkweather case influenced more stuff than you know. I mean, if you watch Natural Born Killers, that's loosely inspired by the Starkweather case. If you watch The Frighteners by Peter Jackson, that's another one that's loosely. And in fact, he mentions Starkweather in The Frighteners. He says, I got me 12, boys. That's one more than Starkweather. Yep. That went completely over my head until this past month. Right? Yeah, And of course, Bruce Springsteen, or as Vinny <laughs> heard me say one time as we were feeling pretty good recreationally, Bruce Stingsting. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen has a song called Nebraska on the album Nebraska. Uh, it's the title track, it's the first track, and it's about this case. A
3: uh, fun fact, uh, one time I went on a camping trip and in the car ride from Terre Haute, Indiana to the Red River Gorge friend Craig Hampton made us listen to the entire album of Nebraska. Did
2: you guys upset him?
1: (laughs) He, he, years later, apologized for that. Fun (laughs) fact, the night that I bought the Nebraska album about 15 years ago, I was working with Jerry Coleman, JC, uh, who was a local uh, basketball coach, DJ, etc., and... uh, Played in Nebraska and he was like, "Hey dog, you got to change this." <laughs> He's like, "This shit's too depressing. <laughs> it's a whole depressing album because you get Nebraska to open with, and then you get Atlantic City yeah. right next, and then they just keep rolling." It is where a I, uh, bleak
0: album. For shits and giggles, I, I prefer Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the fun is. Now, nah, if you want the fun, go buy Born to Run. But if you want to be sad, get Nebraska. Or if you're like me, just skip it all. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> that's why the next car ride, you're going to be listening to some, we didn't start the fire, which isn't even spring
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I've said about Vinny before, Aerosmith's about as cultured
2: as he gets musically. (laughs) Didn't you get him hot with that once? (laughs) Very. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) The best part is he didn't remember ever saying it until I said it again. (laughs) (laughs) Until I brought it up. He said, boy, I must've been feeling good that night.
2: (laughs) Um, But yeah, you're right. It's, it's influenced a ton. Yeah. And I think Bonnie and Clyde really kind of initially captured the, the concept and the, with the imagination of the American people, a criminal couple. Yeah. Um, but this cemented it because this was gross and scary. Yeah. And as we'll get into with the case, I mean, it's it's more like Hollywood than how Hollywood chose to portray in the movie we'll cover. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, but they were a piece of work. All right. Well, why don't we
1: delve right in. Professor, our tour guide of the macabre, if you could lead us into the real story.
2: Certainly. So we'll focus more on Starkweather because it's debatable, uh, the relationship that uh, Carol Ann would have to things, but we know uh, who our main piece of shit is, and it is uh, Charles Starkweather, who was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, the third of seven children in a working class family uh, from Guy and Helen Starkweather. Uh, he was born with a mild birth defect that caused his legs to be misshapen, along with a speech impediment. And school was very tough uh, for him constantly being teased, I think for maybe being bow-legged. Bow-legged, that's what um, I read, yeah. And having just a, a lot of difficulties with his vision and, and uh, talking in general, kind of like had, me right now.
1: said he had myopia with yes. his vision.
2: Yeah. Um, and so as he got older and grew stronger... Uh, so did the chip on his shoulder. Um, he loved to bully the bullies and the people that had um, given him such a hard time growing up. And he found a real physical outlet for this rage in his gym class, uh, which is where that really started to form some some red flags there. Um, but he, he did. He, he flipped the script on people who had bullied him. He loved to bully them at this point as he got older. Um, and also kind of quickly jumped into hating people like intensely uh, for very superficial reasons yeah. on the way, like unhealthy. Yeah. Um, but in this period as a young teenager, he went from being one of the most well-behaved kids uh, to one of the most troubled very quickly. Um, and by the time Starkweather dropped out of school, his parents and family were reportedly afraid of him due to his physically violent outbursts. So uh, puberty hit Chucky pretty hard. Thing things changed quickly for him on that. Any uh, anything we want to add to the early stages there?
1: No, yeah, it's just that chip on his shoulder would follow him the rest of his life. Yep. I mean, he,
2: you don't. I mean, I'm
1: not going to say, oh, because he had a chip on his shoulder, he did all these things. But it is. I mean, he oh,
2: yeah, it fuels it. He is an unhealthy coping mechanism from a young age.
1: People, he looks at other people and says, I should be that successful. I should be that popular. I should be doing that well. And so he acts out in other ways because he realizes
2: he's kind of a loser. Right. Well, and, and one of the hallmarks of a, of a loser is their predetermined future and them letting you know, like, oh, it's only going to be this or that because life has done this or that for me. And that's uh, kind of like when a dog's barking during a podcast. Um, but so, I mean, he, he, I think that's a very moldable time in a young person's life um, and he kind of cemented his down the wrong path at that point and went uh, quite quickly in the wrong direction. Uh, but he dropped out of school, as I mentioned, and in 1956 he was introduced to a 13-year-old Carol Ann Fugate through her older sister Barbara, who was dating Charles's friend Bob. Uh, Starkweather, who had dropped out of school in his senior year, was working at a Western Union newspaper warehouse, uh, but he sought employment... Uh, they're specifically at the warehouse because it was located near the junior high school where Fugate was a student. So he's quickly jumping to a younger age. That's weird. Yeah. And it it's always made me uncomfortable in these stories when you really start to see the pattern, um, whether it be with serial killers or other situations like this, where people who cannot hang with their peers jump way down where they can. And so I think that's part of what what happened there is he's more confident and leveled off with a thirteen year old girl. Um, he's eighteen. Yeah, that's that's worlds of difference. An eighteen, but, and, a 13-year-old. and I'm not
3: saying that this is right in any way, shape, or form. But I am saying that in the 1950s and earlier than that, that was not that uncommon. In certain parts of the country, especially.
2: Sure, there. I, I think there was an embracing of of the age gap there a little bit more, but yeah, thirteen to eighteen.
3: Oh, that's a gap, yeah, for sure.
2: No, I'm not saying you're endorsing it. It's just <laughs> I think. Maybe just a couple more years, shrink that, and I think everybody's normal with it, whereas they wouldn't be today, to echo your point. Not at all. Right. If a 25-year-old's dating a 30-year-old, it's not
1: a big deal, right? Right. But a 13 and an 18-year-old, I remember when I was 14, uh, an 18-year-old girl wanted to hang out with me, and my mom was like, absolutely not,
2: got shut down real quick. Um, but yeah, they, they began spending time together on a daily basis. Like I said, he, he sought employment near her uh, so that he could see her after school. Uh, at one point, taught her to drive where she wrecked uh, their car. 1949 Ford. Yes. that is car. car. Uh, which didn't go over well with Charles and his father, as you would imagine. Um, and that eventually led to him being booted from the house. Um He then quit his job at the warehouse and became a garbage collector for minimum wage. So Charles is continuing on with uh, the woes that the world has handed him that's out of his control.
1: Yeah, and let's clarify here that uh, garbage men back then and garbage men now are two drastically different things. Yeah. The guy driving the garbage truck now gets paid very well. And most of it's automated. You know, he comes by, it's a remote control, he picks up the trash, he moves on. He does pretty well, and, and financially he's compensated for it. Garbage man back then, it was kind of like a lowest common denominator type job. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, anything we want to add? I don't I want to make sure I'm not talking too long with. Uh, I breathing. don't think
3: so. Uh, the, the only the only thing that struck me that I was going to mention is his obsession with James Dean. Mm, that yes, he had. He. he Fashioned his hair after James Dean and, mm-hmm. and, and was obsessed with James Dean. Yeah.
1: Do you worry that this could happen to you?
3: <laughs> I grew up just outside of Fairmount. I'm all right. Where James <laughs> Dean is from.
1: And buried. Yeah. We just visited his grave for my birthday. We did. So. Good times. Jimmy Dean. Jimmy yeah, Dean. and Rebel Without a Cause resonated with him because he was a rebel without a cause. Like he... Yeah. And, and they play that out very well in the Badlands movie for like... You know, it just being loosely ba- or just being based on the story, but not a direct story. Mm-hmm. They they really nailed that aspect in the film.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting moment for for youth culture because there really hadn't been a lot of well anything like that. And so, you it's a perfect blend for somebody like Starkweather who mm-hmm. is having trouble having his own identity and he's veering down the wrong paths And then he has this unique movie aimed at young people rebelling. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of fuels uh, a kind of a pathetic soul like him. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you can go back um, and look at any pictures of this guy from that era, and you can tell like he's a garbage guy who wanted to be James Dean, <laughs> and an actual garbage human being. Uh, but he, yeah, he really was uh, forming a kind of a nihilistic worldview at this point, um, and only aiming to satisfy his very basic needs um and seemingly enjoying power over others quickly um and so that's the important thing to 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 really shrink this whole case down to before we get into the carnage here is that this is just an older more spread out version of a mass shooter yeah this is a small insignificant piece of shit yeah who gets to a certain point where they can't deal with their emotions anymore and wants to blame everyone but themselves. We would call that in, in, in cell today. Yes. <clears throat> and that's the big difference too. We talk
1: about spree killers, serial killers, and that's now it's evolved into mass shooters. Yep. Because we don't we don't really have serial killers the way in the same way. We don't have spree killers who do their killing over a span of time. Yeah, so this is a spree killing. This is a textbook spree killing uh, that's you know probably one of the top ten in America. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so you're right. So if you take the mass shooter of today, take it to back then, that's what we're talking
2: about. Yep. And I think that's it's basically just a slowdown version of that. Um, but, I mean, really, like the, the amount of time that we've covered so far where he has begun to change in his problematic behavior through when he is caught and executed, this is all a very quick amount of time oh yeah
3: and and the, the thing about this this whole story as well is this doesn't tickle any of that trying to understand the psyche of a mad genius like right. ted bundy did horrendous things and somehow lived a normal life and the ways he escaped and got away with shit and yeah that's all very intriguing uh not admirable but just intriguing sure uh, this guy has none of that. Well, yeah,
2: this, this, is, this is an idiot. With somebody like Bundy in those cases, there are dark recesses of his psyche that we want to understand that are unsettling and mysterious. There's nothing here. No. This is literally what you see. And i, I that's a good point. I mean, there, there's not much fascination in, in what's driving this. It's all right there. I mean, he's just kind of an idiot. Yeah. Who... Did some horrible stuff and It's like our last true crime episode with in Cold Blood. Yeah. We're just kind of a couple of fucking simpletons. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very similar as Todd mentioned, that same kind of span of time and the, the the cases have some similarities. Yeah. Um so yeah, as I was saying though, he he was really forming a nihilistic kind of worldview on everything. Um, And was using his time on the garbage route, reportedly, to plot out bank robberies. Yes. And um, also was settling on a personal philosophy, which he lived through the remainder of his time. And I quote, dead people are all on the same level. So thank you for that enlightenment, Mr. Starkweather. Um, So late (laughs) on November 30th, 1957, Starkweather became angry. At Robert Colvert, a service station attendant, Lincoln for refusing to sell him a stuffed animal on credit. So, I mean, that's that's how we uh, that's how we begin uh, things getting out of control. The garbage guy uh, will not be honored credit to get a stuffed animal at the gas station. Uh, he returned several times during the animal. <laughs> yeah, he returned several times during the night to purchase small items until finally brandishing a shotgun, uh, where he forced Colvert to give him a hundred dollars from the till drove him to a remote area where they struggled over the gun and before Starkweather killed him. He injured him and uh, I think took it took him with several shots. I don't have a lot on that incident. Um, but that was almost two months before things really unraveled. But that was his uh, first documented um, taste for murder. But it's over a stuffed animal. That's what we're dealing with here.
3: But you know what's, what what's and we laugh about that, but at the same time, I kind of feel like this is more and more commonplace people flipping out over dumb shit like this and and causing bodily harm, if not death to somebody
0: else now yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. um radio was too loud or at the beginning
2: of uh, the pandemic, I think it was in, up um in Michigan. At a family dollar, they had hired somebody to do oh, masks yeah. at the, yeah. the door, and they wouldn't let this woman in with her child because the child didn't have a mask on. The woman's brother came back and shot.
3: Yeah, I do and remember And killed that.
2: the door person at family dollar over
0: wearing masks. Yep.
2: Man, just people lose their shit sometimes oh, over talk this. talk about
0: church's chicken sandwich. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to...
2: This is a little tricky because it could be... Very easy for me to bog this down going through their spree. I'm going to try not to go into too much detail on this stuff, but at the same time not just give you totals and be done with it. Um, so basically this starts at Carol's home um, in January of 1958. So the first murder we discussed happened at the end of November 57. A couple months later, uh, we've got a situation here uh, that really unravels the whole infamous case. Um, On January 21st, Starkweather went to uh, Fugate's home to get his girlfriend. Fugate's mother and stepfather, Velda and Marion Bartlett, told him to stay away. He fatally shot them, then strangled and stabbed to death their two-year-old daughter, Betty Jean. That would be why the piece of dog shit was put on his grave. Um, And hid the the bodies behind the house. The two would tell a different story over the years of her becoming a captive uh, in this situation or a participant. Um, but they were there for six days. A relative, I think her grandmother, had alerted authorities who went over there, and they said, now everybody's sick, just stay away. Because there was a, a handwritten
3: sign on the door. Yeah,
2: we've got the flu. Yep. we put a sign up. Which the cops came over, that bought them a little bit of time, but they fled after that. Um,
1: also, another callback to the frighteners: the name Bartlett. <laughs> Jake Busey's character is Charlie Bartlett. In the frighteners, so I mean, they're just using the name again to make the Starkweather. Should we
0: just stop and talk about the frighteners? I wish. Fight, fight,
2: fight! No, that's cool. Did not know that. Um, But they, once the cops had came and they were able to get them to go away for a little bit, they then fled. Um, They drove to the farmhouse of seventy year old August Meyer, uh, one of the family's friends who lived in Bennett, Nebraska. Starkweather killed him with a shotgun blast to the head. He also killed Meyer's dog. It's important to point out this piece of shit killed more than one dog uh, during this uh, spree there. But fleeing the area, the pair drove their car into uh, mud and abandoned the vehicle when Robert Jensen and Carol King, two local teenagers, stopped to give them a ride. Starkweather forced them to drive back to an abandoned storm cellar in Bennett where he shot Jensen in the back of the head. He attempted to rape King, but was unable to do so. He became angry with her and fatal shot shot her as well. There's much debate over if Carol mutilated uh, the genitalia of the girl uh, because she got jealous. Yeah, it seems like that's the. I think this is the one that sent her away, at least for the mm-hmm. amount of time that she was there. Um, but yeah, at this point they're just unhinged yeah. I and mean, they're killing people left and right as for immediate needs. Car,
1: well, what we'll see in the film is that the film takes aspects of all these killings, mm-hmm. but tells a different story.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it really begins to after this, because I think that's arguably their most heinous situation with the young couple um, that they did this to, but where it really flips everything is um, the next one at the, it's a wealthy section of Lincoln Um, they entered the home of industrialist C. Lauer Ward and his wife Clara. Starkweather stabbed their maid Lillian to death, then killed the family dog by breaking its neck to keep it from alerting the wards when they got home. Um, And so then Clara, who arrived first and alone, was stabbed to death. Then Starkweather uh, also killed the man when he arrived. But the fact that they were in more of the wealthy society... um, Got the uproar going quickly. Um, Law enforcement agencies in the region sent their officers on a house-to-house search for the perpetrators. Uh, The governor contacted the National Guard and the Lincoln chief of police called for a block search for the white people running, boy. Yep. (laughs) Um, After several sightings of the two that were reported, the police department was accused of incompetence for being unable to capture the pair. Oh, man. Talk about a higher level of scrutiny quickly back then. Yeah. A little bit different now. Um, but needing a new car because of Ward's Packard having been identified The couple came upon traveling salesman Merle Collison Sleeping in his Buick along the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming Poor Merle um, After he was awakened, he was fatally shot Just ain't that a bitch Trying to sleep on the side of the road and get smoked um, But Starkweather later accused Fugate of performing a coup de grace After his shotgun jammed I don't know about that Starkweather claimed that she was the most trigger-happy person he had ever met. She, of course, denied ever having killed anyone. Uh, the salesman car had a parking brake, which was something new to Starkweather. Different time. Uh, while he attempted to drive away, the car stalled because the brake had not been released. He tried to restart the engine, and a passing motorist, geologist Joe Sprinkle... That's real. He's a geologist. Uh, ...stopped was to he, help...
1: Was he was a meteorologist.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've just got geologists here. Either way, his name's Joe Sprinkle, and he was just trying to help. Um, but Starkweather threatened him with the rifle, and an altercation ensued. And at that moment, the sheriff's deputy, William Romer, arrived on the scene. Fugate ran to him, immediately bailing on Starkweather. She's like, That's the dude! Yes. That's him! Like, him. It's, it's Starkweather! He's going to kill me! Uh, Starkweather drove off and was involved in a car chase with three officers exceeding speeds of 100 miles per hour which I'm sure at the time was legit oh yeah, Um, yeah, for sure a bullet fired by Sheriff Heflin shattered the windshield and flying glass cut Starkweather deep enough to cause bleeding who then stopped and surrendered immediately No! Heflin later said he thought he was bleeding to death that's why he stopped that's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is (laughs) and so uh, they got him and that was the end of the spree. He immediately confessed to all of it. So there's, there's, there's no mystery uh, in really any of it. The only thing that comes from this afterwards is the constant debating on Carol's involvement with this stuff. Thoughts on the crimes or her from anybody? Would you say it's the it's all about the he said
1: she said bullshit? Yes, yes I would.
2: <laughs> You're about to leave with a fat
1: lip.
0: Uh, he's been sitting on that for thirty years. Yeah, I see it on his notes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: like the, the the sheer disregard for human life in general is is uh, shocking. But, other than that, there's not much about this that's
1: it's just
2: unbelievably intriguing. mean and stupid yeah
3: it's it's just yeah, mean and stupid,
1: and I think that's the interesting thing about it, especially when we get to the film, is that I want to say we as Americans have romanticized killers in some ways, sure. And what this story does and what the film does is just show how mundane it is. Like, what they did is heinous, but they it wasn't glamorous. Like, they were just yeah. like, oh, you're on our way, we'll kill you. Yeah. You're on our way, we'll kill you. Which
0: I think a lot of the times in this case, though, a lot of the people weren't even really in the way. True. Uh, a lot of them probably didn't know who they were, what they were doing. Like, I think a lot of it was just unnecessary to... I mean, I think that's the thing. It's It's almost like a... Halloween movie where the person just happens to walk by and so they kill him.
1: Yeah. But yeah, the way it jumps off with him killing the gas station guy, killing her family. You know, It's an 18-year-old guy killing her family or they were maybe 19 and 14 when it popped off. Yeah. Killing her family so that he could be with her. It's insane. Let's, and, let,
3: and, and let's not only does he kill people with reckless abandon, he, he's killing animals with his bare hands.
0: This man, did you say choked to death? A toddler. Wasn't that, he? the youngest person was two, the oldest person was 70. I mean, just, yep. good lord. Yeah. Again, you couldn't just leave the child. Yeah, just steal a car, steal a wallet, no. like, why are you needing to do all this? Um, she sucked. I'm sure the parents would have gave her away. I mean, my favorite is
2: is that once they have him in custody and they're beginning to take a look at all of this and he confesses to this and that but then he starts to say that a lot of this was in self-defense. <laughs> now, never mind the absurdity uh, that they're pinballing around this area of the country where mm-hmm. people are not overcrowded yeah, um, and they just happen to run into a uh, well, her family members, but then a 70-year-old, some teenagers, they're all just looking to just go after Charles. Never mind that he's just out there living his life. This is all in self-defense, except for he shot them in the back of the head. Yeah. Most of these people that he killed. and They pointed that out pretty quickly. Um, but and he, he
3: choked the death a toddler.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A two-year-old. And broke the neck of a dog. Like, nah. Scumbag. I love, I love that in the trial, they put
1: uh one of his bosses from Western Union on the stand to be like a character witness for him and he said Starkweather is one of the dumbest individuals I've ever met.
2: Like <laughs> you can step down. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> um but yeah he he repeatedly tried to drag her down with him, yep. saying that if I'm gonna be executed, so should she. Um so noble approach from him there. Um the judge, Harry Spencer, did not believe Hugh was held hostage by Starkweather because she had numerous opportunities to flee. Yeah. And didn't. Um, which is... It's weird because it, you get into uncomfortable territory when you take a look at some of these situations and being, speaking an absolute truce about people. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But it, it sure seems like she was guilty. Um, maybe not directly for a lot of this. Um, but it's like they you know this guy killed your half-sister. Two-year-old half-sister. You know it. And it, none of it adds up. They're there at the house for six days because she's claiming that she's being told that he's going to harm the family.
1: Yeah, part of the story is that they say that, she, that they claim that she wasn't there when he killed them right. and she thinks he's holding them hostage. Yeah. yeah.
2: But it's like, okay, we can make concessions for that. Like, how many times do we see this guy blow the head off of somebody before you know what's going on and you can you find an opportunity to leave, which is well documented? Like yeah. she wasn't, un, it wasn't unavoidable to get away, and so the minute she was getting ready to have her ass get in trouble too, then she flees. Um, and I think that's the hard part because you take her age into account. Sure, it's like
1: you take because this still happens. I mean, you talk about these kids that meet other kids on the internet, and they come over and they murder someone's father or family, yeah. and, like, they're like, you know, after it happens, it sinks in, they're like, they're not coming back, are they? This isn't a video game. You know what I mean? Like, there's this idea that, like, it's these impressionable young minds don't understand the magnitude and the scope of what they're getting into, and it would have only been that much more back then, I think. What, yeah. I mean, I'm not giving right? her a pass, No, I'm, I'm just saying, like... It's hard to hold a fourteen-year-old accountable for what a nineteen-year-old, the path that they let them down.
0: So yeah. it wasn't the uh, the, I say recent and still it's been a minute now. But the Slender Man case, weren't they both like thirteen-year-old girls that mm-hmm. killed their? Did they kill the girl or she? No, she lived. But, but still, I mean, she they up. stabbed her tons of times. Yeah. Um, so
2: yeah it's it's interesting too which i think
0: when i was 13 it's like i was like hey let's go to
2: the skate yeah <laughs> it's it's tough because you know as a as a responsible adult with a fully functioning brain my first thought is blueprint when you have situations like this it's like okay i can exploit this kind of loophole mm-hmm. and so you you but i mean this we're talking half a century ago so whatever came from it is came from it but at the same time You look at a case like Edmund Kemper. He he killed his relatives as a youth. They were like, oh, he he had a tough time, and then and then you know got him out of there, and uh, things didn't go too well later in life for him, Um, Mr. Bumblebutt. Uh, Bumblebutt. So yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, and I think one that's kind of extended the shelf life on this case because of it. I think. People are fascinated with that dynamic and really trying to understand, like, what is just in this situation? Uh, but what they saw as just back then was execution uh, for Charles, who was uh, at 12.04 a.m. on June 25th, 1959. They moved quick. Was executed in the electric chair. He had nothing to say for his last I was say, I
0: feel like they did not fuck around back then. Like, like most of these no, cases, they caught you one
1: week and yeah. you were hung the next. Fun fact, he had the choice to be tried in Wyoming or Nebraska, and he, mm. he thought that he would get yep. killed in either state, so he said, send me home to Nebraska. Well, he did not know that at the time the governor of Wyoming was uh, against the death penalty, and so if he would had been tried in Wyoming, he would have just spent life in jail.
2: Yep. And so, and
1: other than that, he got on the fast track for
2: the electric chair. I, tear no. he gave, he, I was going to say he gave no last words there, but he did write a letter to his dad hmm. um and he wrote the dad i'm not real sorry for what i did because for the first time me and carol have more fun that was some some reportedly uh wonderful literature from him there uh, but he was indifferent about all of it and just kind of ready for his fate uh which just goes with his underwhelming existence
0: that led us there that's why if i'm uh if i'm ever on trial for this i'm gonna my last meal will be the Shamrock Shake and a rib. <laughs>
1: um, well, speaking of his last meal, Vinny, you'll appreciate this. Do you know what his last meal was? No. Why do you complain about the price of Jimmy John's? Because it's just slick meat sandwiches. <laughs> That's what his last meal was. A slick meat sandwich. It was like Jimmy John's. He just got a cold. <laughs> he just wanted a cold cut sandwich. What
2: the fuck? <laughs> you know, it's fitting. <laughs> he's, yeah. he, he's a cold-cut human. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a, just give me a bologna sandwich. Yeah, bologna
1: a, and cheese. Pea-brained reptile.
2: But yeah, he was buried in the same cemetery in Lincoln as five of his victims. Mm. Um, and then as for Carol, she was convicted as an accomplice and received a life sentence on November 21st, 1958. She was paroled in June of 76 after serving 17 and a half years at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. And uh, she went on to settle in Lansing, Michigan. And I believe she's still there today at 78 years old.
1: I think at some point they may have moved to Ohio. And her recent husband died in a car accident. They were both in a really bad car accident. But she kept his last name. And she applied for uh, a pardon in 2020. Yeah, I saw that. She wanted to to be pardoned because she wanted to be out from the burden of that. And many of the families of the victims advocated for her pardon.
2: But she wasn't granted it. Yeah, I think getting to have freedom for the majority of her adult life is was good. is good. probably fair enough. Was, if we turn it, if we're turning the blind eye to possibility that she was a victim, So like, yeah. that's the happy medium.
1: Yeah, uh, she was the youngest woman in American history to be convicted of uh, murder mm. um, at fourteen years old. Yeah, and she was sentenced to life, as you said. Uh, but at some point
2: our judicial system said, you can't put 14 year olds in jail for life. That's just not a thing. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, I would imagine because of her being such a young age is the only reason she got that freedom. Yeah. Yep. But yes, that is the case. Badlands. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on the case? No, I just, other than what we've already mentioned, uh, it's effect kind of on um, pop culture. Um, if you haven't listened to the Bruce Springsteen song, listen to it. Because a lot of times with these, you'll hear about, you know, this song or this piece of art is about this case, but not as direct as this. Yeah. Like the lyrics are directly can, talking about it. Can you it. go ahead and sing it for our listeners? Yes. <laughs> um There's also a made for TV movie, Murder in the Heartland, in 1993. Um, with Tim Roth in the starring role. Oh, okay, um, so we opted. Who was badly the? So we'll
0: uh, is that the one with a, um, uh, bulk? I'm blinking on her name. The, the bulk. Crap. Yep. Uh, I don't remember. I, I just she I just the, jotted uh, down that Tim Roth was the the Fugate. The, the Fugate. Hmm. Carol Ann. Either that or she was in the Fugees movie. I'm not sure.
1: Say <laughs> <laughs> so it was called Murder in the Heartland. Yes. All right. Carry on, and now.
0: And I heart think that again uh, from that whole time. Probably like early two thousands, mid two thousands. There's a movie called Just Starkweather. Um, it could be good. Could uh, most of the ones that came out at that time period were, were poop. So I kind of stopped watching those movies. Yeah. Especially when they did uh, Gacy versus Dahmer, whichever one they they versus. <laughs> good times. Oh
2: yeah. Any uh, other thoughts on the case, Vinny? No,
3: rather underwhelmed yeah. as, as a true crime story. Appalled, but underwhelmed. Yeah. It's so, interesting,
2: too, the the treatment of time. Because if we were alive then, this would be the boogeyman story we still talked about decades later. But it's sure. like so much has happened since then. Right. Todd, you are correct.
1: Uh, not only does Tim Roth play Charles Starkweather, Farooza Balk plays Carol Ann Fugate. Cool. Randy Quaid's in it. <laughs> Interesting life. They didn't cast him. He just showed up. (laughs) Okay. So the film, Badlands. Toddy, do you have any dates and details? Well, it's
0: called Badlands, as you just pointed out. Stepping on your toes again, (laughs) I'm sorry. Badlands, 1973, and nice try, Wilson, to get me to watch a Terrence Malick movie. Yeah. And directed this film. Imagine I'm the
2: only person at this table that likes The Tree of Life.
0: (laughs) Blah. Uh... So starring um, a young, good looking Martin Sheen, Sissy Spacek, uh, Warren Oates, um, and I was originally in Hollow Notes. He was in Hollow Notes, and I actually looked up because uh, man, Sissy Spacek looks her part. So I looked it up because I was like, that is creepy. But she was twenty three years old playing fourteen but man, does she look young yeah. also yeah, the uh, same with coal miner's daughter she she stayed young looking for a yeah. long time which then i like that they just didn't have her wash her hair and they're like look how nasty she is in carrie yeah <laughs> dude she's 13 yeah finally uh I, I do have to say i i'm a i i not a fan of terrence malick movies but this was actually first first watch for this podcast um uh, I, I can see... I, I really didn't want to talk about because I don't know the, the crimes as well, so I didn't want to talk a lot during that. But man, this movie definitely influenced... like I, I kept listening to the song and then I'm thinking of the subject matter and it finally hit me. I swear they even played the same song in True Romance. Um, which, you know, True Romance obviously is a different... I wouldn't say that it's a direct take on this, but because uh, you kind of root for those characters. Uh, but... Yeah, Natural Born Killers, like like so many films. And um, actually, I uh, finally get to see a good movie from Terrence Malick. <laughs> you guys are just trying to pick a fight with
1: me.
2: No, he's an acquired taste. I get it. And and his more modern stuff, it, it continues to get more and more out there. But um, the interesting thing with this is seeing really the early beginnings of a trio, um in the two actors and the director that are going to go on to have massive careers. And so you can see a lot of the traits of what make Malick a good director on full display right out of the gate in in this movie, which is his first movie. Um, But he's very... One thing I've loved always about him is his use of natural light, which is present in this. He also did Days of Heaven with um, Richard Gere. Uh, These uh, movies constantly, he's always had this great eye for a very natural presentation, and I think that's part of why this movie has this aura to it uh, that just marries perfect with the performances of these two. It's almost entirely daylight. Yeah, and the, the, the performances from Sheen and Spacek are so good. They're so good. And they're not celebrated in the same sense as a lot of stuff is from that decade. It's kind of overlooked at times, but they're powerhouse in this. I mean, they're both so good. And
3: watching Martin Sheen this young, it always reminds me, I remember growing up and you'd hear everybody's parents talking about how Charlie Sheen looked just like his dad. Mm. But the reality is
0: Emilio Estevez looks exactly like their dad. Both of them, by the way, are in the movie. Yeah? Yeah. The uh, I think they're under a street light, like the two boys. Hmm. Oh, um, when they're in. Um, where are they hiding out at when that happens? I, uh, I don't is that for the killer dad? I think so, shortly yeah. after. Uh, I do have a note uh, next to Martin Sheen uh, that he gave me a lady boner. So <laughs> there was that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a weird. Because that's what I was wondering is is they. I think it's good that they they really impress that um, you know this isn't the true story of Starkweather and Fugate because they um, I hate to say they almost make it like especially Sissy and, and she's telling the story of how they, he killed her dog and um, yeah when the dad kills the dog I'm
2: like kill him
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: greatest yeah. greatest character actor of all time I I'm always salty because I forget he's in it then I see that name in the credits, I'm like, Warren Oates, yes! <laughs> and then... He's really good in it. Yeah. As the dad, and as the artist,
0: and like
1: all that, yeah.
0: But, uh, yeah, like even, if they definitely played the James Dean stuff quite a bit in this one, uh, and the movie, and, um, uh, even the end, and I, I think it's, I, I literally just watched the, um, Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie recently, um... But like the it kind of the end of the movie reminded me of, of Bundy where he's you know in front of the press because the same way is like that he's like handing out his objects to the cops like who wants this lighter and almost like he's a celebrity or something and the yeah. cops are kind of treating him that it. way um, and then they even are saying how much he looks like James Dean and um, so it's it's such an odd movie and I'm not saying because they definitely don't make it like hey you should go out and kill these people because like the, the one you don't even know if they died in the film or not where he has him go in the, the storm cellar mm-hmm. but still it's despicable shit that he's doing but they definitely left out like the, the baby and the mom mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I don't think he touches the rich guy in the film and, and the maid And but I kind of feel like too like because Sissy Spake Zeke is I just went totally stupid there uh, because she's telling the story it's almost kind of like it's her version of what's happening is kind of how I take it too because she make, makes a point to be like, we didn't even know until later that the maid was deaf. Because I was like, oh, they're going to kill her right away, and then they leave. And so I almost kind of take it as like some of it is kind of what maybe she kind of maybe the kinda, way she saw things. Yes, the yes. way she explained it away in her head. That's a fair take. And
1: I never the, thought
2: about that that decade, and it's a, a huge reason why I think I'm. I just love '70s movies so much. Is the filmmaking is is much more bold um, as we come out of the code. This, the are, this is
3: around time the code goes
2: away. Yeah, we got the code leaving in the late 60s. And so uh, the way I view it is is um, kind of moral ambiguity. So t- two, de- two decades later, we're going to have movies like Natural Born Killers where we know they're scum. Whereas this, we tap into a little of both and we leave it up to the viewer to take what they want. From these scenes, because in real life, the, the obviously the story we just covered that they're pulling from, scum. Mm-hmm. But then in this, you kind of have a youthful innocence to them. Um,
0: do, do you think filmgoers would have sat through a whole movie during that that time period if they would have? Were you hated both of the people? Because even even in Cold Blood, yes, that's... even in Cold Blood is downplayed a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think they would have. But that's what makes stuff like this interesting, is because we explore kind of different ideas with it. So, you know, we know the real life couple, but then you're watching this movie, and you've got that great scene where they're dancing to "Love Is Strange" yeah. outside of their treehouse. Now, that's nothing like no,
0: which the, they, the case that I want to point from. out. They rip that off of "Dirty Dancing." <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: So Orca came out before Jaws. Yeah. So this, but like even ten years later, this movie isn't going to be what it is here. Right. And so that's what I think is interesting with it is it's a it's bold filmmaking without seeming like it, mm-hmm. uh, because they're they're really teetering on some offensive lines really because everybody watching this knows the material that it's pulling from. Yeah. But it's not directly romanticizing it. But it's also pulling from some of that. Appealing love on the run situation that makes these stories interesting, right? It so. is pulling off
1: the ad like the way they romanticize like Bonnie and Clyde, right? You know, what I mean, like you know, which
2: came out what ten years before this? That's right around the code lifting because yeah. it really, I yeah. think it was, uh, it was Arthur Penn pushed that pushed the limits. Yeah, so like. <laughs>
1: They're, they're pulling from that idea they want they want to tell this story about these people who do bad things but they also want to give it that Bonnie and Clyde rub so that like you don't like
0: them but you kind of tear for them right you know um, uh, plus is, again I don't I don't know the audiences could have handled could, could you imagine like Henry portrait of a serial killer coming out like in that time period because I'm sure like psycho they're Probably people passed out because they're like, oh my God, a toilet. But I do think that's what's interesting, though, <laughs> is, is, is we still
2: show victims. We still show despicable behavior and how these people seem to be a product of circumstance, not human lives lost. And but so they, we're still not shying away yeah. from them being bad. yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting about this movie, is that we still take time to explore... Early stages of a young relationship, that if you're not killing people, can be quite wonderful. They
3: definitely leave out the more deplorable things. Oh, without from the question. actual story, that the toddler murder. Well, they leave out uh, a lot of the stuff. Rape, it's the rape, the attempted direction. rape, right? Uh, or,
0: mutilating genitals, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and, they leave all that, and some of it too. You're almost kind of, again kind of like how she's telling the story. Like, okay, well, he shot these guys in the back, but if he didn't. They were just going to kill us because yeah. they are after money. Right. If they were cops, he wouldn't have done that. He did that because they were I don't know why I'm hunters, talking like so... a 30s movie. Like, Let's see Johnny. Johnny was like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Another thing that I really liked about the film was the black and white montage that they did of all the posses and bounty hunters and law enforcement agents mm-hmm. getting together. To... Is
0: that one dude in every movie? Like, Night Living Day. Like, I swear, like that, just that image of the guy with the gun, like... Just pose with a gun. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I I will say uh, I I started this movie super late yes, last you did. night, really late, and then I, I had no idea. So I I started and I see Terrence Malick, and I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: but again, I really enjoyed it. And then Todd actually put on uh, the Thin Red
2: Line. Didn't go to bed. Oh, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever watch that again. Hey, also Terrence Malick, you love it. Mm. But yeah, interesting movie. Yeah. Yeah,
3: I I like the movie. Uh, I did like it. I I didn't know what to expect going into it. I mean, with these true crime movies, you never quite know what you're going to get. But yeah, I did enjoy it. It, it, Like Grizz said earlier, it's not really romanticized. There's nothing epic about it. It's just kind of mundane. Yeah. It's crazy shit that they're doing. But it does feel like a person's day to day life that's not very eventful, other than those moments.
2: Yeah. And this is about as far of a stretch in terms of documenting a case in movie form that we're ever going to cover. Yeah. But they even said, you know, from the jump when they made this, that they were pulling from that case. So, yeah. I mean, it's not a stretch to say. Yeah, which I, I, don't,
0: I don't think we mentioned it either. But yeah, like um, Martin Sheen is playing Kit. And uh, Sissy is playing Holly. Yeah. So like they didn't try to name them. um, Yeah,
3: and you know, there's it's not linear. The details aren't all there of the exactly the murders. Yeah. They well, and even in what was it in Monster when we did that, they changed some of the names in that as well. Right. I don't know if I'd say they didn't have to pay people or
1: what. Right. Yeah, I'd recommend this film. I think it's a good piece of cinema. Um. As, uh, Period. Um, as, yeah. It's uh, yeah. As Elric would say, it's pure cinema. Pure right. cinema. Pure cinema. It's a it's a good film. Um. Don't count on it to be a, a straightforward telling of the tale. But
3: and don't look for it to be horror. I know this is a yeah. horror
1: podcast,
3: but
2: but this is our true crime section. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say too, if if you like the kind of love on the run movies, even yeah. even if you're if you're not crazy about it, not being a true crime spot-on de- depiction of what happened. It's interesting to put in the in the same conversation with things like True Romance, Natural Born Killers, California. Sure, Take your pick.
0: This Christmas, if you're looking for a feel-good movie, Badland. <laughs> and then
2: any other movies that Terrence Malick made.
0: Right, Todd? <laughs> I, if you watch three of his movies and you can make it through it and watch this, you'll be like, give him the Oscar. <laughs> so... so
1: all right. Well, folks, that is another installment of Sounds True like the Crime. Done.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're frying a turkey now, yeah. folks. We've so. been talking turkey. Now it's time to... <laughs> Hey-o.
1: So, Well, thanks for joining us again, friends. Uh, let us know if there's any cases and movies that you think we should do. We really enjoy doing these true crime episodes. At least I do. I don't know if you Definitely. guys do. Um, but, yeah. Reach out, let us know what you think, and let us know if there's anything we should cover. So, signing off for another episode of True Crime with the Midwest Monsters. I'm Grizzly Adner, and I'm joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Cigarette pig. (laughs) 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 Alright, stay scary.